Well, good morning, Aletheia Church. Uh, miss you guys and am looking forward to when we will be able to gather uh, again in person. There'll be more information on that later on uh, in the video this morning. Uh, we will be in Acts 16 this morning, so you can go ahead and open up your Bible or your scripture journal and head there with us. Um, last week, Pastor Daniel did an excellent job of working through all of Acts chapter 16 uh, in his sermon, which was entitled, Empowered to be Inclusively Exclusive. And he talked about how uh, although the gospel is exclusive, just like any other religion or worldview out there, that we see the beauty and power of who the gospel invites in, that it is inclusive to anybody that would come underneath the banner and work of Jesus Christ. And we saw that the gospel invited in the seeker, it invited in the skeptic, and it invited in the enslaved and radically saved each and every one of them. I think, though, as you read Acts 16, we see something else that is really cool in this passage. Uh, think about last week in the story of Lydia and how that was just read for us a moment ago in our scripture reading for today. What do we know about Lydia? She was a seller of purple goods, meaning she was a successful businesswoman. Uh, she was a leader on some level in the city of Philippi and possibly a widow. And it says there in the text that she loves God and is possibly even uh, some leader in the local congregation there in Philippi. And the way that we know this is because women would have to have met outside of the city because Jewish law required 10 males for a synagogue to be formed, and there was no synagogue inside the city of Philippi at this time. Paul going to these women would have also been an abnormal practice for a Jewish Pharisee. Rabbis were known to say during this period in time that it is better that the words of the law be burned than be delivered by a woman. Meaning what is going on on this riverbank outside of the city of Philippi is countercultural and an amazing example of what God is doing in the early church. We see here, though, in Philippi, the beginnings of an outbreak for the glory of God and the gospel played out by Lydia and a few key people in that city. Lydia herself is mentioned, she's converted, she's baptized. And then she says this, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Lydia is clearly a model for us of service and hospitality. And one of the things I hope to show us today that we draw out of this story and from a few other places in scripture is the beauty and the unique role that women play in the life of the church and the, the mission and the advancement of the gospel. I think for far too long, right, the church has wavered in its position on the importance of women and what they do in the context of the local church. And so we're going to spend time this morning 
by God's grace, unpacking the role of women and their importance in the local church. And hopefully we will find encouragement that we can lock arms together as men and women for the glory of God. Now, I need to maybe give a little bit of a warning out this morning as we dive into our sermon this morning, that this morning's uh, sermon may seem more like a uh, seminary lecture or a college lecture than a typical sermon here. And the reason behind that is we need to understand biblically where we are coming from when we understand the role of men and women underneath the banner of God's word and how God has designed us to operate as a church. If we are to fulfill the great commission laid out by Jesus, the very words that we said were the catalyst for everything we see in the book of Acts in verse eight of chapter one, and see the gospel expand to every tribe, nation, and tongue, we must understand the unique and important role women play in the life of the church. And this is a question that the church has struggled with over time. So I'm going to attempt to answer that question this morning and how it plays out for us here at Aletheia Church. And let me just say this on the the front end of this sermon. I ask for some charity in the way that we present this. And what I mean by that is what I'm going to say this morning may uh, confront or rub up against some of your own personal uh, ideological views. They may also even rub up against some of what you know or believe to be true about the scripture. I would ask that you would first and foremost, allow the scripture to be your guide and your final arbiter in anything that we say this morning. But also know that anything I say this morning, there are going to be some that come from a conservative side that think that I'm not conservative enough. And there are going to be some from a liberal side that think I'm too conservative. And I want to just say this. Here at Aletheia Church, we are focused on making disciples and doing that underneath the banner and the guide of what Scripture asks us to do. So let's let the Bible be our ultimate authority this morning as we study these matters, and let's learn to celebrate our distinctness as both males and females while glorifying Jesus. So here at Aletheia Church, uh, the elders and myself hold to what is commonly called to a biblical complementarian view of the roles of men and women, both inside the church and inside the home. And there's baggage that comes with that terminology that I'm well aware of. Uh, when people hear that term, uh, they often uh, associate it with things like patriarchy, uh, words like toxic masculinity, uh, things that are dangerous and harmful towards uh, women in 2020 and all the progress that society has made in bringing equality to women over the last 100 to 130 years. And I fear all of those terms as well in some way, because in many ways, I worry about those things as well. But I do not believe that those terms accurately describe the biblical view of complementarianism. 
And so what I need to do first and foremost is kind of give us a 30,000 foot view of the way in which the Bible describes the role of men and women in the church and how the church typically over the years has approached this subject. And there's been, for the most part, two competing views from the Bible on the role of men and women throughout scripture, specifically roles of leadership inside of the church. And the first view that I want to talk about is known as egalitarianism. And I'm going to be simplifying uh, the, the view this morning. And I know that there is a lot of nuance even within that position. But an egalitarian position would state that there are, two, that are, there are no distinguishable differences between men and women and the roles they are to operate both inside the home and inside the church. So to maybe put that more simply, they would believe men and women are asked to do the exact same things and are exact are asked to uh, operate in the exact same ways inside the church and inside the home. Now, an offshoot of the egalitarian viewpoint, and probably something we see sometimes today in, in our uh, culture here in the United States, would be what we would describe as Christian feminism. And I need to stop for a second and just say that this Christian feminism is not the same thing that we would see as a, a political feminism or someone that you would see on TV at a political rally, but that Christian feminism is a, is a particular offshoot of egalitarianism that still looks to the scripture as being the arbitrator of some of its decisions, but would not allow scripture uh, to be the final say in all of its decisions that it makes on, on the role of women inside of the church. Christian feminism would say that uh, they would seek to elevate women to the same roles as men inside the church or possibly higher. And oftentimes inside of that view, there tends to be a distrust of scripture because the view of scripture is that it was written by men to protect women and suppress women's rights. Uh, oftentimes, even inside of that particular vein of thinking, there can be distrust of men overall. Egalitarians, however, may not necessarily accept all the same things that a Christian feminist would say. They would instead champion and say that there would, there would be a sameness between men and women, not just in personhood, but in gifts, abilities, and more specifically, roles and leadership. And I think what the main thing we need to understand today as we're looking at this stuff is that the egalitarian view and the complementarian view, the biggest ways that they differentiate between one another is that they would say God has placed some particular roles inside the church and inside the home only for men. And complementarianism would, would state it this way, that under God, men and women are created equal in value, Yet each is given distinct roles and callings inside the home and the church. Now, sometimes an offshoot of this, uh, or at least is often confused with complementarianism, is what's known as Christian patriarchy. And that view would be that men are the foundation of society and that men are supposed to be leaders in their heads and they have all authority in any given situation. So uh, holders of this particular theological position would say that churches and homes should be led by men only and society should be male-dominated. Oftentimes, Christian patriarchy is associated with misogyny 
And some would go so far as to say inside this particular viewpoint that all women should be under male authority at all times, meaning if you are a newborn girl, that you're under the authority of your father and that you would remain under his authority or some other man's authority until you are married to then fall underneath the authority of your husband once you are married. And that at any given point in time, you should be underneath the authority of a man if your husband is not around. Now, I, I, I... disagree with that particular uh, interpretation of the scripture and would just say no from a practical standpoint as well. I do not want my wife to be underneath the authority of some of the men in our church. Not because I don't love them, but I don't believe they're qualified and called in that way. And I don't think God calls us to be in that way. Therefore, biblical complementarians would reject many of the ideas under patriarchy saying that men are called to unique roles, which the Bible defines as headship, which we'll define more later on, but are not to lord that over all women. And that women can and should lead in many areas of society and life and business and work. And that we only allow uh, men to hold these specific offices as outlined in scripture, trying to honor what God has asked of us. So we need to ask ourselves this question and we're gonna hop around uh, the Bible today to look at some specific things. We need to ask ourselves the question, where do complementarians derive their views on the roles of men and women? And so I wanna start out by going all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter one. And let me read verses 26 and 28 through 28 to you. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what do we see here in Genesis 1? What what does God lay out for us from the outset when he creates male and female? We see that men and women are both made in the image and likeness of God. This is a theological term described as the imago Dei, meaning in God's image. And what we see is that both men and women are created in God's image. Therefore, men and women have dignity and value because they're image bearers of our creator. And yet we also see that they are distinct and that there are differences between them as God lays out that he makes them both male and female. This means that by design, men and women are made to represent God in the, here in the creation mandate uniquely in how they were made. This means that gender is not a social construct, but a design of the God of the universe to represent 
his glory to the world around us. We see there in verse 28 that God says this, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And we see that that command is given to both Adam and Eve from the outset that God has placed inherent beauty in men and women and has given them this role to fulfill what God has created them to do. So scripture reveals that God intends for men and women to have separate but complementary roles to one another in fulfilling that design. And I'm gonna flesh that out for us right now. Uh, the first thing we're gonna see is that complementarianism as an understanding of Genesis 1 reflects our creator. Turn over to Genesis chapter two with me and let's look at verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, so let's just pause and, and think about what's going on here in Genesis 2. Right? This is the story of, of God creating man and woman and, and seeing uh, Adam and Eve begin to fulfill this mandate that God has laid out for them uh, as we saw back in Genesis uh, chapter one. And, and the first thing I think that we should see as we look at this is, is a little bit of humility time for the men in the room that are watching this. Right? God has created Adam and as Adam is there doing all the things that God is asking him to do in Eden, right? He has said time and time again after each day of creation, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then he gets to the creation of man and he sees Adam kind of working and ruling and uh, subduing the earth and doing all the things that he's asked Adam to do. And he looks at this and he says, you know what? That is not good. Adam being alone, it is not good. And this is not a talk or a time about singleness. I, I've heard a lot of people get to this passage of scripture and say, oh, this is, this is proof that men should never be single and, and that this is what he's referring to. Now, what he's saying is that there is something in the creative order that Adam could not fully express the image of God by himself. So in referring to creation, then as he creates Eve and brings her in, he says that creation was not good without woman present. And so he creates Eve and he refers to her as a helper fit 
for him, a helper fit for Adam. And that word helper oftentimes has negative connotations with it. I've heard women say to me over the years like, oh, so women were just created to help men. That's all we were created to do. And and the understanding of the Hebrew and what God is doing here is that's not the idea of what God is saying at all. What God is actually saying as he lays this out is that it is good news that God has brought a helper into creation. That word for helper there in the Hebrew is the same word that is used to describe God's rescue of Israel throughout the Old Testament. Meaning, ladies, when the Bible calls you a helper, it is not a demeaning title displaying to you that you're supposed to do whatever men want you to do. No, it's a title that reflects your unique ability to show God's character and nature in a way that men could not do alone. That creation is incapable of displaying fully the glory of our God without the unique roles, gifts, and experiences of women whom God created. And we see this beauty here in Genesis chapter two that when Adam and Eve come together and work together, they are complementary to one another and therefore fulfill the creation mandate that God laid out in Genesis chapter one, which was to be fruitful, to multiply and to subdue the earth. And so we see very early on that Adam and Eve complement one another and they complement one another in such a way to fully reflect the Imago Dei. Now, what sometimes gets thrown out then is that, well, complementarianism may be something that we can see in the creation order, but what about post-resurrection? What about after Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection? Is the created order uh, reestablished in some way? Because as we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, right, Paul says that we are a new creation in Christ. And so is this mandate of complementarianism in creation still being seen today? And the second thing I want to show you guys this morning is that complementarianism not only reflects our creator, but it also reflects the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you turn over to Ephesians chapter five with me, right, we see Paul himself talking about marriage as a reflection of the gospel. And here's what we see uh, starting in verse 22. Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects 
her husband. So here we see that wives are called by Paul to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And the question is, why? And we see that Paul goes on to explain that he says, it's for the sake of family unity and major decisions to honor him. But ultimately, once we get towards the end of Ephesians chapter five there, Paul says the ultimate reason that wives are to submit to their husbands is because that submission reflects the church's love and submission to Jesus that only wives can properly reflect and display that role of the church's love for Jesus and what he's done for them. And that wives do that uniquely in their relationship with their husbands. Meanwhile, husbands are called by Paul to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, the first thing I always like to point out is, first of all, the level of submissions that husbands are asked to do here is actually a higher form and level of submission. That men are required and asked by God to be willing to lay their lives down for the good of their wives and the good of their families. But not only are they asked to be willing to lay down their lives for the sake of family unity and to protect and keep their wives and families safe, but ultimately Paul goes on to say this, that they reflect Jesus's love for the church and how he gave his very life up for our good. That the church recognizes and understands that we fall underneath the authority and leadership and headship of Jesus and that wives reflect that in marriage by falling underneath and submitting to their husband's final say, but that husbands in the same way reflect the depth and the magnitude and the beauty and love of Jesus Christ and the way that they would lay down their own preferences and rights for the sake of the good of their wives and family. So from these two passages we see that God designed men and women differently, but also as complementary expressions of the image of God. And to step outside of what God is revealing to us, both in Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapter two, and Ephesians chapter five, to step outside of these creation mandates would be an attempt to rob God of his design and intention for us to display his glory to the nations. So, When we talk about complementarianism being important, we say that it is an important understanding of scripture because we want to give God the rightful honor and glory that is due his name. Now, it would be important for me to take a step back here for a second and talk about what complementarianism is not. (laughs) Because many times, and even in my own life over the years, there's been some confusion about complementarianism. So here are some things that complementarianism is not. Here are things that are not taught in the Bible that we are called to follow. The first one is this. Complementarianism is not a spin on 1950s American values and gender roles. Right, there's this common theme within evangelicalism even to take women's and men's roles back to a 1950s approach of the stay-at-home mom and the go-to-work dad and that everyone must follow that exact picture. Uh, One of the primary reasons for this is that a famous TV show during that time period called Leave it to Beaver was what many people uh, 
idolized or wanted to reflect inside their marriage. And there became an ideal inside American culture and subsequently found its way into the church that the best way to honor God was to follow that picture of the American family. Nowhere in scripture will we, will we, will we see directives asking us to live our lives out in that way. We also should say this, complementarianism is not a hierarchical view where women have less value than men in society and structure and must serve men at all times. If you find yourself inside of a church that claims to be complementarian and then would say that women are less than men in any way, shape, or form inside of society or anywhere else, what we would say then is that is not the biblical understanding of complementarianism and we would break free from that understanding. The third thing that we would say that complementarianism is not, it is not an excuse to oppress women inside of society. Using the Bible to suppress women's votes, using the Bible, the Bible to suppress women's ability to run for public and political office, using uh, the Bible to try to suppress a woman's opportunity to work or be a leader in the workplace is expressly <laughs> rejected in our view of complementarianism. Because complementarianism lays out rules for the church both to function as men and as women, but it does not say that the society is held to those same standards. So let me outline then for us what we at Aletheia Church believe to be the complementarian position. And I've got four points for you this morning on that. The first one is this, the Bible is our authority on these matters. That the Bible tells us how God wants us to operate and live as the church and as the people of God, both in the home and in the body of Christ. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This means that we believe scripture teaches us that God designed things to be a certain way and we need to follow God's directives and commands inside of scripture to best honor and glorify him. Meaning if it's not in scripture, we should not hold to it as if God himself has said it, but that if it is in scripture and what God has said in scripture goes against our either our cultural or societal assumptions, we should allow scripture to be the final authority, not our society, our cultural assumptions. The second point that we would make is this as complementarians. The church is a family. Women and men are called to reflect interpersonal relationships that reflect a healthy family dynamic. Throughout the scripture, language is used both by Jesus and others that men and women inside the church are brothers and sisters first and foremost. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 48 through 50, Jesus says this, but he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Right, the point that Jesus is making there is that those that are in Christ are family. 
And family is called throughout Scripture to treat one another with dignity, with love, with compassion, to encourage one another, to fulfill our God-given abilities and talents for the glory of Jesus Christ. Meaning that we approach one another as equals and we esteem and we raise up one another, building one another up for the glory of God and for our own good. The third thing that we would say as a church that we believe as complementarians, that men and women are both called to gospel ministry. Men and women are commanded to participate in the ministry of the church and the advancement of the gospel. And that is seen both in the creation mandate of Genesis chapter two, but also in Ephesians chapter five and in other places. In fact, an absence of either men or women inside the local church will lead to atrophy and a decrease in effective ministry. This means that a healthy church needs both men and women using their gifts and their talents together for the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 14, Paul says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Right, the point that Paul is making here is that men and women are uniquely gifted by God and given gifts by the helper, the Holy Spirit, as we've seen throughout the book of Acts. And as the Holy Spirit gives those gifts, men and women come together using those gifts the way that different parts of our body work together to have us do things. And as the body of Christ comes together using those gifts, there's this beautiful harmony and melody that begin to play together as the church comes together in unity, singing about the glory of God, using those gifts together for the glory of God and for the good of those around us. The last point that we would make as complementarians would be this. Equal involvement and participation in gospel ministry does not mean interchangeable roles. That equal involvement in the Great Commission does not mean interchangeable roles. Let me put up on the screen for you a couple of things that we see specifically throughout Scripture where women were called to do and successfully executed certain things within the body of Christ. We see in Luke chapter 8 that women were both involved in learning underneath the teaching of Jesus. We see in Titus chapter 2 that Paul reminds Titus to allow the older women to teach younger women biblical wisdom inside the body of Christ. We see in Romans chapter 16 that there was a woman named Phoebe who served as a deacon in that church and had a very, very important role as a servant leader for that church, leading ministry areas and helping the church to serve the poor, the widows, and the orphaned in that area. We also see in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, that Paul mentions a number of women who labor alongside him in gospel ministry, meaning that, we, that women are called to labor alongside uh, pastors and leaders inside the local church in gospel ministry, not just in subjection to them, but alongside them, locking in arms and doing ministry together. And lastly, what we'll even see in a few weeks as we continue to study the book of Acts, that in Acts chapter 18, 
Priscilla is the one that is attributed to properly and accurately fully explaining the gospel to Apollos. And Apollos ends up being this guy who plants a bunch of churches and ends up becoming a very, very key figure in the early church. And yet we see it is Priscilla who is the one that properly teaches and outlines what God has fully done for us in Christ and how the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a helper because of what Jesus has done. And so we see women called to all these various roles and things inside the body of Christ. And we also see that the Bible reserves at times certain roles for men only. And we allow the scripture to be our authority in these situations. The Bible says this to us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, that the role of elder or pastor is reserved for men. He says that, that um, an elder is supposed to be a qualified man, a husband of one wife, and that he meets a number of different qualifications to be able to oversee the church. He also goes on to say in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that the role of preaching is reserved for men to the local church body. He then says in in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, that the specific role of protecting the church from false teaching falls to the elders, which falls to men. And that lastly, we see in Acts chapter 15, that exercising judgment and doctrinal issues and then leading the church through those is reserved to the elders and men of those churches as well. Apart, though, from those specific roles that are outlined as roles for men in Scripture, we believe that the Bible encourages women to flourish and be involved to the full extent that Scripture allows. Now, I know that some of you might even be bored (laughs) at this point as I've been plowing through kind of this this slowly systematic view of looking at biblical complementarianism. So the question you might have is like, why are we even talking about this? Well, one, I'll just say this. When you get to a place like we have here in Acts chapter 16 and you see the story of Lydia, I personally am amazed by her work and understand that she is one of just many amazing women listed throughout scripture. And that without the roles and the work of many women inside the local church over the last 2000 years, the church would not be where it is today. And that God wants both men and women to labor together in their God-designed roles to glorify him and witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of the many reasons why I want to, to address this issue and talk about this is our own tribe as complementarians at times has done a poor job of allowing women to fully operate within their roles and gifts that God has given them. And that we must as a church fight for that so that we can be the full picture of the church that God wants us to be. The second reason I want to talk through this is because it's important for us to recapture the biblical definition of what God wants us to be. That complementarians should be the ones championing 
esteeming and valuing women and men to both live out the roles in which God has called them to play, to live out the gifts that God has given them so that the church may grow, disciples may be made, and that when that is not the case, the church should repent and correct those errors and sins. So here's how I want us to finish our time this morning. How can we do this? How can we better emulate what we even see inside the book of Acts as the gospel is exploding and going forward all over the Roman world? How can we not get bogged down and fight over the validity and the authority of scripture and understanding men's roles and women's roles, but yet still allowing people to function within the gift sets that God has given them? The first thing I would say is, we should all, as the church, the body of Christ, be doing this. We should consistently be evaluating our views with what Scripture teaches. Right? My own wife gave me permission to share this story, and so let me share it with you. Uh, my wife grew up uh, in, in a home where her parents divorced early on, and she would say that she struggled with having solid male role models for much of her life. And so when she got to college as a follower of Jesus, she openly and readily admits that reading the Bible and seeing passages like Ephesians chapter five were hard for her. And she said there would be times where she would completely discount what Ephesians five would say, but then take to heart things in other parts of scripture. And she said that God by his grace confronted her and says, either you believe my word in whole or you believe none of it that either you take what my word says or you don't. And as my wife describes it, she says, God confronted her with scripture. And in confronting her with scripture, he by his grace revealed to her his design that men and women were designed to complement one another, not fight over roles or, or have the same interchangeable roles every single time. And my wife talks about that even as she first came to that realization, there was still a maturation process for her as she was seeing God's grace in her life, both in accepting God's word to be true, but then also seeing the beautiful reality of that played out in her life. My wife often says now that she finds more joy in seeing God work in her life on this side of complementarianism than when she denied it and that she feels more free in her ability to love God, love others, and disciple others now, knowing what God has called her to do and what God has not called her to do. In the same way that God had transformed my wife's own heart into seeing the beauty of his design through scripture, he did the same to me that much of what I came into the church with when I first became a believer some 15 years ago would be in line with what we would call biblical patriarchy, right? Meaning that I thought men had a place in scripture that was better than women and that women should be subservient to the men in the church. And God, by his grace, called me to repent of that sin in many different ways, one of the most profound ways was some of the best Bible teachers I have come across in the last 15 years have been women. Even in this very sermon this morning, I'm deeply indebted to both the understanding and teaching of both men and women on this subject. 
women like Jen Wilkin from the Village Church in Dallas, Texas, or others from the Gospel Coalition who regularly write blogs on this subject, that women have been designed by God to clarify biblical teaching for us. And that happened in my life the same way that it did for Apollos. And it led for me for a season in my life to examine where my beliefs did not align with scripture and repent of that sin. Our views must align with scripture in order to honor God. Meaning that women and men are both called to reflect the glory of God. Women to reflect the church's relationship to Jesus Christ and men to reflect Jesus's relationship to the church, especially inside the context of marriage, while both testify of Jesus's good news to the world around us. The second thing I think we can do is we must avoid overemphasizing the importance of the roles of elder and preacher. These roles are often romanticized inside the church, meaning that some people are made to feel less than if they do not find themselves in one of these roles. The first thing I will say is this. The the qualifications of an elder are difficult and hard, and they should be because it is a unique calling for a man to be called to be an elder of a local church. And when God calls someone to that role, right, he is calling an elder not to be a part of a ruling class inside the local church, but to exercise headship. And when we say exercise headship, we mean following the lead of Jesus and leadership. This means authority for eldership is not in ruling, but authority is found in serving the church the way that Jesus served us. Good elders and leaders are marked by the way in which they will lay down their preferences and their rights for the sake of those around them and for the good of the body of Christ in protecting them and leading to a greater worship of Jesus. We have to, as a church, understand, as Paul even shares in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that every one of us plays a vital role in the kingdom of heaven and that we are not to romanticize certain positions and roles above others. The third thing I think we can do as a church is this, that we can elevate female voices inside the church as long as it falls underneath the biblical teaching. Look, guys, My wife knows the Bible and I love having my wife teach the Bible to people. And we at Aletheia Church allow women and men to sit underneath both the teaching of men and women inside of our gospel communities, knowing that those ministries are underneath the oversight of elders as outlined in scripture. When it comes to making big decisions on mission and values and new hires for the church and making future decisions, it is important for the elders and something that we've done consistently over the years here of inviting women to have a voice in that decision-making process so that we can avoid folly. I will speak on just a practical level. 
that a lot of what you experience at Aletheia Church on a Sunday morning in the way that we love people and the way that we show hospitality and the way that we show uh, love towards others happens not because of the elders of this church, but because the elders of this church sought the input and approval of godly women inside this church who had godly wisdom and uh, recommendations for us to follow. We must elevate female voices inside the church so that we can capture the essence of what God wants us to be. The last thing I'll say is this. We must recognize our need for one another in God's design and emphasize that we need each other. A a story that came to my mind as I was thinking through this is even uh, how my wife and I operate inside this church and the ways in which we seek to serve you and love you and make disciples with you. As you guys know, on Sunday mornings, I'm often the speaking voice up here preaching and teaching the word of God. But you've probably also noticed at times that my wife will either sing or play the keys on a Sunday morning. My wife has a beautiful voice. And especially early on in the life of the church, we needed her. If the church had asked me to be singing, it would have been a barrier to the gospel, (laughs) asking people to come in and hear and follow me leading worship. And because my wife has a gift that she can use for the glory of God, that involves sometimes me having to surrender some of my preferences and prerogatives for the good of the church so that she can be elevated to use that gift inside the church. When I am preaching on a Sunday morning, I like to get up early. I like to get to my office and I like to pray for at least an hour or so and go back through my sermon to be ready to preach to you guys on a Sunday morning. When my wife, though, is singing on the worship team on a Sunday morning, that is just not possible because we have two crazy little boys that need to be watched. And so I surrender my preference on those Sunday mornings where my wife is in the worship team, but I am preaching so that our church can both have my wife's gift bless us and then hopefully my preaching bless us as well. We must recognize our need for one another and when necessary, move and posture ourselves in such a way that are gonna emphasize those gifts. Lastly, I would encourage us to do this. If this morning in any way, shape, or form, as I've been unpacking this topic for us, as we've been looking at Lydia and the beautiful job she did in Acts 16, if you go later on in Acts chapter 16, she invites Paul and his followers back in again to show them hospitality and love on them and serve them. She's just such a vital role to the early church in Philippi that I can probably say without a doubt that church would not exist without her. And there's a reason why God has recorded her in his word. And that we as a church must come to this understanding of the beauty of God's design and how the church is supposed to operate together. That if you find yourself on either end of the spectrum, either wanting to devalue the role that women have in the church or being confused about what women's roles may be, might we confess and repent together when our actions are outside the bounds of scripture. And may we allow scripture to be our final authority in all matters. If you're joining us this morning and you're like, why in the world are we talking about this? What is going on? I could just say this. If you are not a member of Aletheia Church, thank you for joining us this morning. You have walked into a family meeting. You have walked into the family getting together on a Sunday night and talking about a family issue and making sure that we can work through that. 
But I want you to understand that God has designed his church to operate in this way. And we want you to lock arms with us and join us together so that we might glorify Jesus because we believe that God loves you so much that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, for you. And if you consider yourself to be a member, an active member of Aletheia Church here in Gainesville, will you together with me and the other men and women of this church lock arms together for the glory of God so that we might see disciples made in this city and around the world that would declare the goodness and glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, even though this is not a topic that I would naturally teach on my own, we know that is important because you bring it up in your word. God, I thank you that we do not need to be left in the dark when it comes to understanding how you have designed men and women to operate. Help us, Lord, to follow your design and to submit to it in all that we do. God, we love you and we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.